Well, there was a truck driver who stopped at a roadside diner, and he went inside and he ordered a cheeseburger and a coffee and an apple pie. As the waitress brought his meal to him, he sat down, it was set down on the table in front of him, but before he could eat it, three bikers walked through the door. And they came over to his table, and one of the bikers grabbed his hamburger and took a big bite out of it. The other one grabbed his coffee and drank it, and the third one picked up his pie and wolfed it down. Now, the truck driver didn't say a word. He got up, he walked over to the register, he paid the waitress, and then he walked out and left. As these three bikers watched this happen, they started laughing, and one of them said to the waitress, he ain't much of a man, is he? And as she looked out the window, she said, well, he ain't much of a driver either. He just backed his 18-wheeler over three motorcycles. Now, when we're wronged, uh, many of us dream about doing something like that, don't we? But as we're going to see today in Luke chapter 6, God has a different way that he wants us to respond. So I invite you to look with me in your Bible at Luke chapter 6, where I want us to read beginning in verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." Now, what we're looking at here today is a continuation of the Sermon on the Plain. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we began looking in Luke chapter 6 at what's called the Sermon on the Plain, and it parallels the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And when we look at what Jesus is saying here, I want you to remember the context. He had just called 12 of the disciples, followers of his, to be apostles. And he was then speaking to the audience of disciples. He was telling them what it means to be a follower of Christ. And when we hurt those who hurt us, we we look more like the disciples of Charles Darwin than we do Jesus Christ. When we uh, seek retaliation over mercy or hatred over love, we're playing the world's way that says this is how you win the game of survival of the fittest. But anyone who's ever tried to follow the world's way knows that at best, if if you're trying to get even with somebody, you never get ahead. And and as we're looking at what's happening here, there there are a lot of miserable people who have done what we're uh, seeing on the opposite end. The world says that when, when somebody hurts you, hurt them back. If somebody takes something from you, deprive them and take something from them. And while you may feel better for a, for a moment, 
The bitterness comes back, and you often feel worse than you did before because you've allowed that person to draw you down to their level. I guess you really do get even because you get down on their level. You know, last Monday, we celebrated the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And as you look at the things that Dr. King taught, one of the statements he made is he said, let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Something else Dr. King once said is, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Dr. King learned that as a follower of Jesus Christ. Dr. King was a pastor. He taught it as a minister of the gospel. Dr. King was a follower of Jesus who modeled it as a man. And because of what Dr. King and others like him have done, our country has been changed. Now, there's still work to be done. But our country is different because there are those who took what we're reading today in God's word and they applied it in life. And it changed them and it changed our nation. And if, if you're somebody who says, I want to do things the world's way, when somebody slings mud, you sling mud back, you know what happens is you both lose ground and you both end up dirty. Now you may be thinking, well, Roger, at least that's better than being a doormat. I mean, who wants to do what, what God is telling us to do here? Be a punching bag and let everybody hit us? Uh, be a piggy bank where people come and, and take from us. Verse 30 says, gift everyone who asks of you. Or verse 34, if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? I want you to remember that you always look at the totality of a passage. First of all, this part we're looking at today is part of the overall sermon. If you missed last week and what we talked about, you need to go back. It's online and listen to the first part of this message, what it means to be blessed. You need to, to listen to what we saw at the end. You might remember that rope illustration I used where there was a little mark that said, this is 100 years of our life, and then that, the, the eternity that comes, the rewards. You see, God is telling us as believers to take the long view. As you look at what Jesus says here in verse 35, he says, the reward God will give you will be great. This is not about just living for the time we have here on earth. And as I said, you have to look at the totality of a passage. You never isolate a verse in the Bible and say, well, I'm going to pick this and I'm going to build a whole doctrine on it. You, you always look at everything else the Bible has to say about a subject. And you always look at the context and what is the culture, what is the setting, what's going on in that day that helps us understand what is being said here. As you think in terms of, of giving what you have, it's not saying that you're a personal ATM for anybody who wants to take your stuff or who, who is lazy and wants to sit around idly. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 tells us if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. You see, what we need to do is look at what the believers in the early church, those who heard Jesus taught, how did they apply what he said? You read the book of Acts. And it says in the early church that those who had were taking what they had and selling it to give to those who had a need. Now, as you study, if you remember back when we looked at Acts, the setting there was the persecution of believers, the church being dispersed, people were losing their jobs, they, they were being a blackballed in society, they had nothing. And believers were coming alongside and supporting others and helping with what they had. It wasn't just a free-for-all, saying you don't want to work, you want to be idle, here's, here's stuff. You know, at Wayside, we do what we're reading about here. 
We have people in our, in our church who at times fall on, on financial hardship. It could be because of the loss of a job. It could be because of a medical emergency. It could be because of un, some unforeseen circumstance that happens in their life. And we have an agape ministry where we come alongside those individuals in times of need. And we take the gifts that are given through the generosity of God's people here at Wayside. And we use it to support others who have a need. Now, it's not just giving them money. What happens is there's a financial counselor who comes alongside the individual or family. And they say, we want to sit down with you. We want to help you organize uh, your finances, figure out where things are, could be improved or changed. If a person is out of work, we can, we can help them with those who might help with a review of a resume or networking. And we come alongside that family and we help them. And we never give to them and say, now this is a loan and you need to pay it back when you're back in work or back on your feet. This is what we're reading about here. You, you have to look at the overall governing principle that's right in the middle of this passage about giving. In verse 31, we, we have what the world has come to call the golden rule. It says, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And then look at the bookend in verse 36. There it says, be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. You see, we don't give to get. We give because we've already received as believers. We've been blessed by God with the, the health and the abilities and the resources we have. We have received his mercy, and in turn, we show his mercy and love to others. Some of you uh, have people in the world around you who treat you poorly as believers. You have, you have others who take advantage of you because you're a Christian. And what we're told to do here is react as Christ did. And in doing so, it will draw others to him. Maybe you've heard of the name uh, Marganti Lasky. She was born in London, England in 1915 to a family of thinkers. Her father, her grandfather, and uncle were all renowned intellectuals. And she followed in their footsteps. She was an award-winning novelist in England. She's written movie and, and television scripts, some of which have been seen here in the U.S. She was a radio host. If you've ever read the Oxford English Dictionary, she was a contributor of more than 250,000 of the entries. She was a brilliant person. But what she was best known for were her staunch atheistic beliefs. She said there is no supreme being, let alone a personal God who cares. She hated Christians. She hated Christianity. So everyone was surprised in 1988 when she was nearing the end of her life and this well-known atheist and secular humanist in a television interview made this statement. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness because I have nobody to forgive me. Somebody else that was like her was a woman named Madeline Murray O'Hare. Is that name more familiar to you? Madeline Murray O'Hare has been labeled America's most hated atheist. And she was not content to have her own beliefs, but she wanted to eradicate Christianity. She used to live up in Baltimore, and it was there that her two sons were in the public school system, and they had mandatory Bible reading, and she filed a lawsuit that went to the U.S. Supreme Court that was responsible for removing the public reading of the Bible in public schools. 
Now, after her time in Baltimore, she, she came to live in Austin, Texas, right up the road from us. There she founded the society called the American Atheists, and she continued to try to destroy Christianity. What you may not know is that her life came to an end actually here in San Antonio, Texas in September of 1995. Her uh, granddaughter, one of her sons, and Madeline were held captive in an inn over there on Fredericksburg Lane. And the person who masterminded this plot was a former employee of hers who was a fellow atheist. And all three of them were killed to try to take the money uh, from this uh, atheist society. Now, it was six years before their bodies were actually found, and that's when the person who masterminded the whole murder plot finally took authorities to a ranch in Austin and showed where their bodies, which had been mutilated and cut up, as well as one of the co-conspirators, one of the other murderers, was left to rot. And as Madeline Murray O'Hare's uh, estate was sold off, her possessions were sold at auction to satisfy all of her back taxes that she hadn't paid to the government. And in them was her diary, and as this person who bought their di her diary went through it, they published portions of her diary. And in it, she had said numerous times, somebody somewhere love me. Somebody somewhere love me. This was a woman who could not give a sentence without dropping the F-bomb. This was a woman who spewed hate. This was a, a person who acted as if she, she didn't want this, and yet she was crying out, somebody somewhere love me. Just like Lasky, this person who hated Christianity and all it stood for said, I want the very thing that Christianity stands for. I want the mercy and forgiveness. I want the love that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. And a part of her story that you may not know is that her surviving son, William uh, O'Hare, became a believer in Jesus Christ. Not only that, he became an evangelical Baptist pastor. And to this day, he shares the good news of the gospel, a man who had been immersed in the hate of his mother. Jesus tells us in Luke 6.29, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Now, a moment ago, I said to understand what the Scripture is saying, you have to look at the totality of other passages that say things about the same thing as well as the context. We saw last week that the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain that we're looking at in Luke 6 were parallel messages. If not the exact same sermon, the portions and the teaching were the same. So as you look over at Matthew 5.39, there it says, But whoever slaps you on your right cheek... Turn the other to him also. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, in my house, I have two lefties, my wife and my oldest daughter. And, uh, but the majority uh, in our home are right-handed, just as the majority of people in society are right-handed. And I want you to picture this, and I want you to do this, this for illustration only. I want you to picture another person facing you. And if you were to ball up your fist as a right-handed person and hit them, which cheek are you going to hit? You're going, uh, it's the left, okay? You're going to hit the person in the left cheek. Jesus said if somebody slaps you on your right cheek, same thing. If I take an open hand and I slap you, it's, it's not going to be your right cheek. 
Now, some of you are saying, well, Roger, I've got a nice southpaw, you know, left cross. I can, I can hit the person on the other cheek if that's what this is saying. But again, remember, let's talk about the culture of the day. Jesus is talking to a first century Middle Eastern audience. And in the first century, uh, and even today in the Middle East, the left hand is considered unclean because it's used for unclean jobs. I don't mean to gross you out, but they didn't have the, uh, the things that we have today like toilet paper. And the left hand was what was used for your business. So if you go to the Middle East, even today, you're told not to gesture with your left hand because that's an insult. You're presenting an unclean hand to the person. And that's what's in view here. Jesus is talking about an insult. Think in terms of our culture. Do you, have you ever uh, seen these, these movies where somebody has a duel with somebody? How, how do you challenge somebody to a duel? You kind of take out your glove, right, and... And, you know, what do you do? You, you slap them across the, the left cheek. You know, I challenge you to a duel. And, and what you're doing is you're, you're goading the person. You're, it's supposed to be such an insult that the person's pride is wounded and, and they, they have to now fight you to the death, whether through swords or, or the old musket type of pistols. And what Jesus is talking about here is when we as believers are insulted, And what he's saying is, rather than responding in pride or anger, he says, let it go by turning the other cheek. Now, now you may say, well, Roger, that's going to make me look like a coward, or or I'm going to be weak. But the actual reality is, by doing that, you can actually take the power away from your opponent. I want you to remember the context again. Who was in power at the time? Who was oppressing the Jews? Rome. And, and we have a Jewish historian of the day by the name of Josephus, and he's a wealth of information. He was not, as far as we know, a believer in Jesus Christ. And yet much of what Josephus writes uh, gives us a, a parallel witness to what we see in the Bible, and it tells us things that were happening in the day. And one of the things that Josephus writes about is a, a ruler by the name of Pontius Pilate. You ever heard about him? He's the guy that condemned Jesus to death. And Pontius Pilate, as he came in to take over the, the governorship over Jerusalem, he decided to show everybody what a, what a hard-nosed, bad kind of guy he was. And, and he, one of the ways he did it to antagonize the Jews is he brought in standards. These were kind of banner flag type of things that you, you see you know, the Roman army marching with. And they had inscriptions about Caesar, and some even bore an image of him. And he carried these into the temple. Well, if you know anything about the construction of the temple, there, there are no images in there. there are, the only name that is you know, to be honored there is that of Jehovah Yahweh, the true God. And by bringing these idolatrous images in saying that Caesar is God, it was blasphemy. And the Jews rebelled against it. They went to Pilate's palace and, and, and they protested. And they were there for five days and five nights. And, and he finally said, I've had enough of this. And he brought in uh, the Roman soldiers and he surrounded the Jews, three deep with soldiers. And he ordered them all to pull their swords. And he told the Jews, unless you disperse, unless you uh, give up your protest and accept these images in the temple, I'm going to kill you all. Now what the Jews did is they laid down on the ground and they pulled back their, their cloaks and they, they showed their bare necks. And they said, kill us. 
We would rather die than allow this blasphemy of God to take place. Now, Pilate was suddenly put in a precarious position because Rome had sent him there to keep the peace in this, this province. They didn't want any stuff going on in Jerusalem that was created by the guy who was supposed to be keeping things calm. And Pilate knew if he massacred the Jews as he was threatening, that Rome would come in and remove him. And so what Pilate had to do was actually remove the idolatrous banners. He, he didn't hurt the Jews. He stepped back and he withdrew what had happened. And this is some of the background here. Jesus says, you know that by being meek, if you look at the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, there it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now we hear that word meek, and we think it means weak. But the word actually has a literal meaning of strength under control. Anyone here ever ridden a horse? If you've been on a horse, not one of these, you know, ones that walks nose to tail, you know, down a, a trail and only runs when it sees the barn and it's time to go in and be fed. If you've actually been on a real horse, you know, that has, you know, a spirit and things, how do you control a horse like that? It's by putting a, a bit in its mouth. And as you have control of the bridle, most of the time you're able to control that horse. And this is the picture here. That word meek was used to describe that, that horse under control. All the strength was there. It was resident, but it wasn't released. It was controlled. And this is the picture he's talking to us about as believers, saying we're not weak when we do these things. When you, uh, when you act in meekness, you're, you're able to actually to take away the strength of others. Think about Jesus Christ. When he was being arrested before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, as the, the soldiers and the mob came to arrest him, and, and Peter saw what was happening, you remember what Peter did? Peter whips out his sword, right? It's on. We're going to fight. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, put away your sword. He said, could I not call down legions of angels? I could, I could wipe these guys out. Jesus had the strength, but it was under control. Jesus said, Peter, this has to happen. Now, what's interesting, if you keep reading after his arrest, as he was going through the different kangaroo courts, there was a point where Jesus was in one of the trials. It's found in John 18, 22. And there it says, as Jesus answered, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? This guy hits Jesus in the face. So naturally... Having just seen what Jesus said, we would expect in John 18, 23 for it to say, and Jesus turned the other cheek and said, oh, please hit me again. But what John 18, 23 tells us is, Jesus answered and said to him, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Jesus, who tells us when you're hit in the face, turn the other cheek. And yet here he confronts the wrong. And that was in the midst of willingly laying down his life as he was going to the cross to die for us. We find another follower of his by the name of the Apostle Paul. Paul was beaten and imprisoned and all kinds of things. But there was an instance where Paul was being uh, beaten and he doesn't say, oh, this is great, please keep hitting me. It's found in Acts chapter 22. And there in Acts 22, 24, and 25, it says, When Paul had been arrested, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks stating that he should be examined by scourging. That means torture the guy, beat him up. 
so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. But when they stretched Paul out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Paul didn't say, Oh, this is great, hit me again. What he did was he invoked his legal rights. And he said, You are doing what is wrong. And the Romans knew it and they stopped immediately and they released Paul. In that instance, Paul sought the protections that were offered to him legally. You see, as Christians, Jesus isn't saying, be a punching bag. Let everybody abuse you whenever they want. If you're in a relationship where you have an abusive spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or, or you're, you're being bullied and things, you're supposed to just say, oh, it's great, keep hurting me. And, and there are times, the Bible tells us that if you're being sued, go and try to uh, head that off. It says if you're on your way to court, go and try to make peace with the person. It doesn't mean as a Christian you never file a rightful lawsuit. There are times to invoke legal protections. There are times to confront a wrong. We have to have God's wisdom to know when to do those things. And when we do, we're always to do it in God's uh, manner of love. And as we do those things, it will create a situation where people say, why are you different? It will help them to be drawn to God and his love. Like Lasky and O'Hare who said, I want what you Christians have. Back in the days before Germany was reunified, East Berlin was communist controlled and the West was free. And this was before the wall had been built. And those on the East Berlin side decided to kind of antagonize those on the West. And so what they did was they went and they dumped a truckload of garbage on the Western side. Now, naturally, the Western Berlin people could have retaliated, backed up two truckloads of garbage, and said, we'll give you back twice what you did to us. But instead, what they did is they brought a truckload of food and milk and luxuries. And they piled them up on the East Berlin side, and then they put a sign on top of this pile of stuff, and it said, each one gives what he has. Each one gives what he has. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ, it shouldn't surprise us when the world dumps garbage on us, because that's what the world has. But the Bible says, don't repay evil for evil. Give good. As Dr. King said, hate doesn't drive out hate, light does. It's love and light. And what God is telling us here is to give what we have. Jesus says in verse 29, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Now, we read that through our 21st century eyes, where maybe this morning you stood in your closet and said, which one of these 20 outfits am I going to wear to church today? And as you opened your, maybe you couldn't even get your drawer closed because it was overflowing with so many uh, different types of clothes. But people in the first century typically only owned one set of clothes. That was it. Clothing was very expensive and it was valuable. And it was often used for that reason as collateral on a loan. If you were very poor, that was the only thing you ever had to use as collateral on a loan. And what Jesus is saying here is that you've given away your, your, your cloak, your tunic, your outer covering, and the person takes you to the cleaner, so to speak, and they're, they're taking your stuff. He says, go the extra mile and give them your shirt as well. Now, again, they didn't have multiple layers like we do. You had this outer thing and then pretty much your underwear underneath. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's giving the picture of you being in your birthday suit. Now, some of you just woke up, and you said, what? 
Jesus is telling us to, to be naked? Now, we need to understand, again, the culture of the day. Jesus is talking to a first century audience where nudity was normal. It wasn't a culture that was sexualized like it is here in America. And, and you read all the time about people who were naked. If you read about the athletes in the games, like the Isthmian games, they competed naked. You read throughout the Bible about times that people stripped for work. That means they took their clothes off. They didn't want to ruin the one set of clothing they had. If you read Isaiah chapter 20, you'll see where the prophet Isaiah preached naked for three years. Now, don't worry, that's not going to happen, okay? <laughs> but he preached naked for three years. And you're going, oh, my eyes are burning, right? And, and that's the reason Isaiah was doing that was he was showing the people what would happen during captivity. He said, I'm going to give you a visual of the judgment that is coming. You see, in that day when you were taken captive, when a foreign nation came in and took over, they, they didn't strip you naked because they wanted to leer at you and abuse you. Sadly, some of those things happened. But what was being done is the thing you had of value was your clothing. And they were taking what was valuable, and it was divided up as loot, the spoils to the victors. And, and the shame was in that you had lost everything of value. You had nothing left. And what Jesus is saying here is, if you have a lender who has taken your clothing, and, and they're oppressing you, and they're, they're, they're just they're ruining you. I mean, the Bible is clear. You don't charge usurious interest against somebody. It's not saying you can't make a, a living and, and, and receive uh, just payment. But there were people, the Bible is very clear about usurious interest. And in terms of taking somebody's clothing as collateral, the Bible had very specific instruction. If you look at Deuteronomy 24, 13, it says, When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Exodus 22, 26, and 27 says, If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is the only covering. It is a cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And it shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. You see, God is the righteous judge. And what he says is when people are treating you poorly, when you're being oppressed, when you're being taken advantage of, he says, let me handle it. I'm a lot better at this than you are, really. Romans 12, 9 through, 19 through 21 tells us, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, much of the same things are being repeated there. In this picture where he says, when you do good for evil, you're going to heap burning coals on his head. We read that and we go, what, what is that? But everybody in the first century said, oh yeah, I understand that perfectly. Happened last night as I was headed home from so-and-so's house. You see, what happened in that day is they didn't have the, the conveniences we have. You couldn't turn a knob or push a button and there was a spark or, or heat or fire. They didn't have lighters. They didn't have matches. The way that you kindled fires in that day is once you got one going, you had to keep it going. 
And you would bank the coals like you've done on a camp out so you'll have some embers in the morning to, to restart your fire. If you were traveling, you carried coals with you in a container. Uh, if you were over at somebody's house, one of the signs of hospitality was when you left, what the person would do is say, hey, let me give you a, a housewarming gift, okay? I'm going to take some of the coals from my own fire. I'm going to put it in a container. I'm going to give it to you so when you get home, you can restart your own fire. And the picture here is, uh, you know, most people on that day carried containers on their head as well. So the picture here is, as you were overly generous with somebody, and you loaded this container up with coals, what, what happens to that thing on their head? Whew, it's getting a little hot in here, you know, as they're walking home. It's literally saying, kill them with kindness, friends. Go overboard. The more generous you are to them, the hotter it's going to get. So this, this is one of the things that is, is being said here. You know, we see a similar thing in the parallel passage of Matthew. There in Matthew 5.41, it says, Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, everybody in that day said, I understand that. It happened to me on the way here to hear you teach, Jesus. You see, Romans were all around. They were on the roads, stationed in various places. And Romans had a lot of equipment. They carried shields and swords and backpacks and various things. And as you were moving around trying to schlep all your gear around, those of you in the military know what it's like to be in your full battle rattle. And how would you like somebody to come along and carry your stuff for you? Well, the Romans would, would press the Jews of the day into service as kind of a pack mule. And they'd say, hey, you, pick this up, carry my pack. And Rome had these mile markers all along the road. And so when you were carrying the, the, the gear for the soldier as you were pressed into service, nobody liked doing that. You hated the oppressors. Now you were being a beast of burden, so to speak. And Rome knew that this could antagonize the, the captive people, so they had set a rule that said you can only force somebody to carry your stuff for one mile. So you'd get to that mile marker and you couldn't wait to dump their stuff and, you know, there, there's your gear. But what Jesus says is when you get to that mile marker, say to the guy, hey, I'll go with you another mile. And they'd look at you like you were nuts. What? You're going to carry my stuff another mile? Why? And it opened up opportunities to talk about God and how he went above and beyond. How he was willing to leave his throne in heaven and, and come to earth as we talk about what Jesus did. And it opened up opportunities for people to say, why are you different? It's the stuff that Lasky and O'Hare and others look at and say, I want what you have. What is it? What makes you different? Luke 6.36 says, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. You see, the world tells us, fight for what's fair. Get what you deserve. Get even and get ahead. Get back at the person who's hurt you. But I want you to stop for a moment and ask yourself, what if God did that with us? What if God got even with us? And we say, well, God's holy and perfect. He, he's not petty like we are. He wouldn't do that. You're right, he is holy and perfect. And because of that, he demands justice. The Bible is clear that sin cannot be in his presence. And as you think about us who are sinners... Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as sinners, we owe a penalty. That penalty in Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. What we've earned is death. 
And so as a holy and a just God, justice is defined as getting what you deserve. If God gave us what we deserve, it would be death. Eternal separation, the Bible defines it as the second separation in the lake of fire, sent to hell, separated from God for all eternity. That's justice. But God didn't give us justice. He gave us mercy. And he went beyond mercy to grace. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 2.8.9 tells us, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. You see, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. What that means is the best we could hope for if God was just simply merciful was when we die, that's it. Our bodies go in the ground, they rot, that's it. There's no judgment. We don't have eternal separation. But grace is where he gives us what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You see, that means he went above and beyond. What God did is he not only gave us mercy, where we're not judged as we deserve because he, in his justice, paid that penalty for us on the cross. He paid that penalty of sin called death. But he says, I'm giving you grace and I'm adopting you as my son or daughter. Let me illustrate it this way. Imagine for a moment that you have a child who is horribly murdered. You loved your son or daughter and they were killed. And as as you were faced with this tragedy, you, you wanted justice. You wanted the killer to be found. And so you, you search for the person, you found the, the person guilty of killing your child. And if you did everything you could in your power to hurt that person, to kill the murderer for his crime, that would be vengeance. But if you then turn the person over to the authorities and you let the system take him to trial, convict him, find him guilty of the crime, and sentence him to death. That would be justice. But if during the the sentencing, when the judge says he's getting the death sentence for his crime, you plead for the pardon of the murderer, and you say, "I, I, I don't want this person killed, that would be mercy. But grace would then be where you said to the judge, I not only don't want them to die, but I want you to release them to me. And I want to take them to my home, and I want them to go and sleep in my dead son or daughter's bed. I want them to sit at the table and eat my food in the place where my son or daughter was. You see, I'm adopting this person as my son. This one who killed my child has now become a part of my family. I'm adopting them. That is grace. Could you do that? God does that every single day with those of us who are guilty sinners, who caused the death of his son. Jesus went to the cross to die because of me and you, our sins. The wages of sin is death. And God says, and I offer you not just mercy, but grace. I invite you to come into my family to become a son or daughter of mine, to accept my son's death in your place as the payment that you owe And then I want you to be with me in heaven. Jesus said in in the gospel of John, in my father's house are many rooms. God says, I have a place for you in my house. You will sit at the banquet table for all eternity. Your reward is great. You will sit with me. You will be a son or daughter of mine. 
That's what God offers to us. And he says, as those who have received the mercy and grace of God, I want you to show that mercy and grace to others as well. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you to do so today. To say to God, God, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I'm far from you. I'm the one who caused the death of your son. But I thank you that you love me in spite of that. Romans 5.8 says he demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you say, God, I accept your son's death in my place. I accept that gift of new and eternal life. And as we accept his gift of grace, he says, you become a child of mine. You're a part of my family. If you're here today and you've never done that, in a moment as we pray, just say to God, God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life and I realize I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. And Jesus, I am accepting your gift of grace. I'm accepting your death in my place. Thank you for making me a part of your family. And for the rest of us who have received that gift, he tells us to be those who share his love with others. Will you join me please as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us about who you are and your heart for us. Lord, sometimes it's hard for us to grasp what is said, but now maybe as we have a clearer understanding of this, really the hard part comes because now we're called to apply it. We're called to be those who extend mercy in grace when, honestly, we just want to get even. Father, we thank you that you didn't give us just justice, what we deserve. You as a holy God, you as a perfect God, had to pay the penalty of death. You, you could not let that account remain open. And so you solved the problem by sending your son Jesus to die for us, to close the account, and I pray, Father, if there's anyone here today who's not yet received your son, that today they would accept that gift of grace. They would accept your free gift, as you tell us in Romans 10, 9, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised you, Jesus, from the dead, then we will be saved. And I pray today, Father, that somebody would see their need and see the solution and accept your gift of grace. And Father, for the rest of us who have received that gift of grace, would we be those who extend that grace to others? Would we not seek to retaliate against a wrong, but would we instead show love? Would we extend grace when all we want to do is get even? Father, many of us can think of a difficult person, a coworker classmate who's a bully or a problem, maybe a family member who's difficult, a stranger we deal with, would we be those, Father, who extend your love and mercy and grace? And through that, may these individuals come to desire and ultimately receive that gift of new life as well. Help us, Lord, now to be your ambassadors. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.